0: Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before thee. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance, who exalt in thy name all the day, and extol thy righteousness. For thou art the glory of their strength. By thy favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel." Those are verses 14 through 18 of Psalm 89, the first 18 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Monday, May the 17th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and my name is John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being with me today. We're looking at lessons from Ezekiel 4, 1 to 17, Hebrews 6, 1 to 12, and from the Gospel according to Luke, verse chapter 9, verses 51 to 62. So we're continuing in this the, the commissioning of Ezekiel, the, the great commission that he's been given to go and speak to the people of Israel. But today, what we're looking at is, is that sometimes prophets give words in unusual ways. Sometimes they themselves are the message. And here in that case is true in Ezekiel 4, 1-17. to The Lord tells him what to do, that he is to take a brick and lay it before him and portray upon it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it. In other words, there will be uh, armies of foreign nations coming against Jerusalem and build a siege wall against it and cast up a mound against it, set camps also up against it and plant battering rams against it rounded about. It's it's an awful situation because you're you're looking at the the hopelessness of Israel. It's going to be besieged on all sides by this foreign army. Who is coming against it and then he says take an iron plate and place it as an iron wall between you and the city and set your face toward it and let it be in a state of siege and press the siege against it this is a sign to the house of Israel. And so what he's saying is is that, that you're gonna be completely hopeless, completely surrounded, completely cut off by a foreign army, and and there's nothing you can do about it. And and Ezekiel is supposed to be behind all of these things so that between he and the city of Israel, or the city of Jerusalem, is this iron wall that can't be penetrated. There's nothing that can be done. And then he tells him to do A very bizarre thing. He's to lie on his left side. And he's going to lie on his left side for 390 days. This is the sign to Israel that that's how long their punishment will last. And once that's done, then he's to turn over onto his right side and lay there for 40 days. This is 430 days that he has been given an assignment. To be there and he is supposed to set his face toward the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and you shall prophesy against the city and behold I put cords upon you so that you can't turn from one side to the other until you've completed the days of your siege so he is taking the punishment of Israel on himself and showing that revealing it to them as a prophetic sign and in addition to all that he's to participate from their side In all of this as well, from the people's side, he's to take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, all these grains, and put them into a single vessel and make bread of them. So it's just whatever you've got. Throw these things in and make bread from it. And the whole time that you're laying on that side, 390 days, you'll eat that. And the food which you eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day. That's about eight ounces of food per day. And the water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, once a day you shall drink. It's about a pint of water and eight ounces of food every single day for all this period of time. And then he says, you shall eat that as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. I mean, that is complete defilement to heat anything over human dung. And so the Lord said thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations whither I will drive them they're going to be in utter and abject poverty during this entire time and they're going to be starving to death and thirsting to death during this whole time and living in foul horrible conditions and then The prophet says, wait, I've never defiled myself from my youth up until now. I've never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has foul flesh come into my mouth. And so the Lord allows him to use cow's dung instead of human dung in order to make the bread. I mean, it's a terrible situation, and he will undergo this same thing for over a year. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem. They'll eat bread by weight and with fearfulness, and they'll drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and waste away under their punishment. I mean, it's a terrible punishment. It's painful even to read this stuff and to think about what they must have endured during that period of time. And these are the people of God. But it's because they've turned away from him and they've worshipped other gods. It's the same as in the time of Elijah when the drought happened, right? I mean, the drought doesn't just affect the water supply. The water supply is essential to growing crops as well. And so there's no crops. There's no water. There's nothing. The people are starving to death and they're, they're dying of thirst. It's like when Elijah goes to the widow in Zarephath and, and she's ready to bake a little cake and die. And then suddenly the Lord provides all the needs once they take in the man of god but but here the man of god is the one who's going to be suffering vicariously for the people in advance and that he is to show them what awaits them and and nobody will take pity on him and nobody will turn even though this is the word spoken against them sometimes prophets do things a little strangely to say the least but it's because god tells them to do these things and legitimate prophets will indeed endure anything in order to express the word of god and to do whatever he calls them to do and and it's not being a fool for christ as in i'll I'll do anything and and be an idiot in order to get the message across no what's whatever's required to preach the word of god whatever he requires of me in order to do that i'm willing to do and in this passage from luke what we see is 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 that we're we're continuing the movement from mount of transfiguration forward so jesus has is set his face to jerusalem which means he's going to die that's his thing is that he is determined to do this thing and so he he is single mindedly moving in one direction and he sent messengers ahead of him as he heads that way and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans in order to make preparations for him. You remember, you see the same preparation thing um, after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday as well. He sends messengers ahead to prepare a place for him where the he and his disciples might have um, the the Passover feast. And so here he's done the same thing as he's going to Jerusalem. It's y'all go on ahead, get everything ready, and we'll be there in a little bit. And so they went on, but the people wouldn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They don't believe in this. They don't believe this Passover feast that they're headed for is actually the Passover feast because they don't accept Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem as proper for Jews. And so they're not going to allow him to stop in Jerusalem this place, on his pilgrim journey. And that's the reason most Jews would have avoided going through a Samaritan village on their journey to Jerusalem. They take the long way around because this inhospitality, and James and John see this, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? It's, what? What? I mean, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah is what they're speaking of. And one of the things in Sodom and Gomorrah is the inhospitality of the people. Certainly, that's a portion of the, what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, not to mention the, the horrible morals of the people there, but the inhospitality of the people towards strangers is another one of those sins that they've committed. And it's a grievous sin because hospitality, as I've mentioned several times, is one of the cardinal virtues in Judaism. And so when they turn him away and won't do that, then then James and John want to treat them like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that exposes, again, the hatred of the Jews for the Samaritans and vice versa. So you see it on full display here in a way that's only alluded to in John, not uh, John four. Sorry, um, and so here Jesus turns and rebukes them, and they go on to another village, and and, and Jesus is not willing to treat those who are um, Jews essentially, um, but who don't believe the things the Jews believe. But they only take the Torah, and they stop after the. Um, after Deuteronomy, and then they don't have the prophets, the kings, or any of those things. And they think those have apostatized from true Judaism. And so here, these are the lost children of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel. Yeah. And, and John and James, in their anger over these Samaritans, they want to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people. And Jesus is having none of that. No, this is not nearly the same thing. So anybody who wants to claim that the main thing going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, even the only thing, according to some people, is inhospitality and not a whole lot more, gross moral turpitude and all this other stuff, you're missing the point intentionally. Because Jesus here, this is, this is inhospitality, certainly, but it's not sort of compounded by... All this other stuff. And Jesus says, No, you're not going to do that. And as they're going, Jesus, I mean, he set his face to Jerusalem. You can see this intensity of purpose. And what's going on here. And as they go forward, people come up and, and, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, son of man has no man to lay his head. In other words, you're not following me for comfort. That's not going to go well for you. you you've you misunderstood this thing. You you thought just coming into a kingdom, but that's not what's happening here. And then another, he calls to follow him. And, he, and the guy's response is, let me first go and bury my father. And it's the same thing that happens with Elijah and Elisha. Elisha is going to, uh, go and tell his parents that he's moving on and moving into this new phase of his life. And, and Elisha said, "Never mind." And then he, he burns his plow and goes on. You know that the, he he just leaves, just like the disciples left their nets and followed Jesus. But but Elisha burned that plow and went on. There's no going back now. I mean, he made a complete break with the past in doing that. And so this one says, let me go bury my father first. He says, leave the dead to bury their dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. No, you, it's got to be everything to you. It's got to mean everything. And you've got to pursue this thing uh, ahead of everything else. And then another said, I'll follow you. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. And then Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, we've all done it. It's the same with the the um, rich man uh, entering the kingdom and, the, and a camel passing through the eye of a needle. It, it, it's impossible, except for it's not impossible. It's just not happening today for this guy. I mean, th- there's always another opportunity. <clears throat> it's not that you, well, you failed one time, you're done. That, that is a horrible theology. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, you know, hey, this is, this is how important this is. This is everything. This is the kingdom of God. It's eternal life. It's it's the once in a lifetime offer. And you compromise that when you fail to to accede to that call. And in Hebrews six he, he talks about the very same kind of thing. He says, Let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He said that's the beginning stages of the proclamation of the gospel. It doesn't mean that you don't always need to be reminded of it, but let's let's move on. Let, let's get on to these other things. And, and let's You need to become mature. You need to know more than just that. And too often, that's that's all we leave people with. We tell them that if they come and they be baptized, if they'll repent of their sins and accept Jesus as Savior and be baptized, then they're good to go. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, "Well, no, they're not actually. That's just the beginning step. It's just it's it's the it's the being reborn that's happened here. But but that's not all that happens in your life, and it's certainly not all that's supposed to happen in your Christian life. You, you're not just reborn through baptism. No, you're born so that you might be a new creation, and that you might grow to maturity in the same way every child is expected to grow to maturity." And so he says, look, if God allows us to, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And then he says, it's impossible to restore again repentance. Those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then commit apostasy since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. And so his argument here is not just for those people who have sinned after baptism, sinned after they have come to taste and see and and receive the Holy Spirit, and, and then fall away in sin. That's not his argument here. The argument here has to do with those who crucify the Son of God. And what does that mean? It means a reversion to Judaism. It means that that when you go back and participate in that sacrificial system again, when you try to hedge your bets, you've denied him. You've denied the efficacy of the cross. And so you've crucified him in the same way that they crucified him because they rejected him as the Messiah. And so that's the issue that the writer is getting at. Here, it's not about, you know, sort of, lapsing into sin. No, 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 no. This is active participation in the denial of Christ. You have said, we're not sure, and we're not sure if that's efficacious, is the same thing as saying it's not. If you can't make up your mind and move on, if you can't make up your mind, plow forward and say, yes, this is the only way, then then you've crucified him again in the same way because you've denied that what he did on the cross was good enough. And so then he keeps on speaking about that. Um, And though we speak thus, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. For God's not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end. So what he's saying is, is, is that, that that's not a final answer on this, that God's not going to be unjust and overlook the things that you're doing, the right things you're doing, your work, the love you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. But what he says is that we want you to, to, to show that same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope and the end. In other words, we want you to show the same earnestness that you show in serving and loving. We want to, that same earnestness. We want to see that over here in your faith and your trust in Jesus, that it would persevere to the end. And, and that's the main thing that we all need to keep in mind is that his sacrifice was enough. The work on the cross was finished. All the work necessary for salvation is done when Jesus says it is finished and then breathes his last. The work was accomplished and done then. The proof that that work was done and fully accomplished is the resurrection. Where God says, not only is it finished, it was finished well, right, and permanently.